Hi guys, it's Valtteri Bottas here from Alfa Romeo F1 team Orlen, and you're listening to Pink Bike Podcast with Mike. I forgot his surname, but he's a nice guy. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy. And today, we're going to be a little off-topic-ish. I've got three guests with me, and we're still talking bikes, though, because one of them is women's world tour racer and Canyon SRAM athlete, Tiffany Cromwell, who has wins in the Giro, Spring Classics, as well as a load of team victories that she's been a major part of. She also went to the frickin' Olympics and now rides a ton of gravel. Tiffany, we're stoked that you're here. Whereabouts in the world are you right now? Currently, we are in Argentina, in Iguazu, which is on the border of actually Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. It's one oh, of the biggest nice. Waterfalls. Brazil. Basically having some yeah, off very, season. very close to Brazil, yeah. which is handy. Yeah. Do you do you travel with a bike down there? Do you guys have gravel bikes with you down there? Not here, because yeah, for me, it's a one period of the season I can actually have without a bike. So. Yeah, we decided to, after America, the last gravel race, left the bikes while they're somewhere in America right now. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, just bike. Although we did ride bikes today, but they were from the hotel. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine. When one had potential for gravel, like what was nice gravel. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I would imagine it's probably nice to travel without bikes for once, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it just makes it easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've also got Amy Charity here with me, a former pro racer who's co-founded SBT Gravel Race in Colorado. And she's here to talk about next year's Finland Gravel Race that's happening next June. It's got a $20,000 prize purse. Amy, can I can I come do this race or what? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We'd love to have you. Yeah, and it's uh, 20,000 euros um, and... SBT Gravel also has a, a big price purse for pros, $22,000. Oh. So, yeah, it's uh, registration opens next week, and we're, we have a lot of buzz around it right now. Oh, nice. I don't think that I'll be getting any of that prize purse, but I could definitely see why it would bring some, some fast people for sure. Yes, there's been a lot of international interest in it. Nice. Well, speaking of international interest, I've also got Alfa Romeo Orleans Formula One driver, Valtteri Bottas. So that's right, Pinkers. I bring up Formula One on this podcast every episode, and look what's happened. It's like I've manifested a freaking F1 driver on the show. Valtteri, you're in Argentina too. Are you missing bikes? Are you missing driving? Or are you just happy to be away from both right now doing a little vacation? <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's nice sometimes to disconnect, whether it's about, well, maybe for me less than for Tiff disconnecting from the bike, because obviously it is her job for me. It's, uh, it's more like a hobby and nice thing to do. So I, I could here also cycle every day, but I can manage one or two weeks without a bike. Um, and yeah, I'm yeah. just currently between the two races of um, Mexico and Brazil. So we thought we would stay in South America and explore something new and... Uh, yeah, the wind took us to Argentina. Nice. I like how you say hobby, which I guess like compared to your, your actual profession, it is a bit of a hobby, but I suspect you're fairly competitive, just, you know, just being a competitive person and all, that's for sure. Yeah, slightly. I think Tim yes. knows me pretty well, but 
yeah, I, I do like comedy. Yeah. <laughs> but I also love yeah. the fact that I challenge myself sometimes with in another sport, you know. For sure, yeah. So if you haven't heard of Valtteri before, you don't follow F1 racing, you, you definitely should. But he's been an F1 driver since 2013 when he debuted for Williams. Something like 67 podiums, 10 wins, raced for Mercedes for five years, I think. He now races for the Alfa Romeo F1 team. And as we're going to talk about in this podcast in a few minutes, he also rides a ton of bikes. Uh, I don't really have a huge plan with these questions, Valtteri, um, but I don't get to talk to F1 drivers too much. So I've got like, I don't know, five or six hours of questions for you that you're okay with that, right? You don't, you don't really have much to do today, I'm sure. My clock is ticking, so we've got less than an hour. <laughs> Go have for you, it. Have you heard Finnish people that not talking much? <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, well, let's let's talk about bikes for a few minutes first. Uh, Valtteri, do you use a power meter by any chance? Of course I do. I love data. Oh, I like how I like how you answered that. Of course you do. I thought that was the case. So then I imagine that you know your FTP, watts per kilogram, and all that kind of stuff, eh? Yeah, yeah. Of course I know. Is that is that something that you can share with us? I'm just curious. Yeah, sure. I'm easy. Like it's been a while that I've actually tested it. Like specifically, it was now almost almost two years ago. Uh, well, maybe one and a half one and a half years ago. I tried uh, did a test. It was three twenty five, but it has for sure increased wow. from, from that. So I don't know. It's hard to say in detail, but. Probably realistically closer to 350 now. Oh, wow. Well, okay. So I won't be beating you at the Finland gravel race then, it sounds like. <laughs> never say never. He's Max Powers. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> I think I'll just sit behind you the whole time and then take you on the finish line, Valtteri. <laughs> sure. I, actually, I'm a sprinter, so. Yeah. Um, so I know that you guys are, you're definitely fit athletes. Uh, Tiffany's your partner. And you guys have been together for a while now. Tiffany's a, a Tiff, you're a pro tour cyclist. Like you're obviously like fit as hell. So I was just wondering, I'm going to come back to you on this, Tiffany, what you've learned from Valtteri and, and his profession. But I was wondering, uh, Valtteri, what have you learned from Tiffany that maybe have you been able to apply to your fitness that's helped you in driving? Well, yeah, like when I met Tiffany before that, I knew cycling as a sport, I would say like, as an average person quite well mm -hmm. because I, I always like watching sports and especially like elite sports is always really interesting but then of course when I got to know Tiffany better I got to know very much in in detail how the training is um, how, how the, the races are what happens during the race how, how's the teamwork in in cycling mm -hmm. um, you know all about the, the tactics in the, in the race all these kind of things that I never had the insight of, of things. So for sure, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned also that it's a brutal sport for the for the professionals yeah. because you're def definitely like dedicating all your life, you know, all, all day long to the training. And um, and then, yeah, obviously the, the, the races, it can be one day or it can be one tour. And there's so much preparation, so much training for a single event, you know. And it is impressive how, how far... Uh, cyclists they can push their bodies in terms of the training and, and the fatigue and um, so yeah you need to be really committed you need to love the competition to do all that kind of training um, 
but yeah, obviously training for to be an F1 driver is is different for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I can't uh, do you know multiple uh, six hour or five five or six hour rides in, in in a month because I just don't have the time and energy for that. So yeah, yeah, like if I if I focus on on training on the bike, it's it's going to be a bit shorter than that. Um, I try to do it as often as I can, but yeah, obviously time is pretty limited and sometimes I need to recover from my my races as well. But I would say the biggest thing that I've learned from Tiffany and, and about the bikes is maybe more like the, the mental side of it. Like for me, it's such a nice way to um, like release stress, um, trying to escape in a way, you know, it's, it's um, yeah. for me, it's a nice, nice thing for my headspace. And also a way of exploring that I never really, when I did, always did love bikes, but now when I absolutely love them, it's just, it's just a great, great way to explore because I travel a lot. So I have the, the opportunity to see so many cool places. Yeah. What about you, Tiffany? What have you learned from Valtteri that you've been able to apply to your racing or your training? Definitely stopped me to recover. You know, I'm a typical cyclist or was a typical cyclist that was like, oh, I can't do a rest day. Like, you know, yeah, was always scared to take days off the bike and overtraining and all this sort of thing. Like thinking you need to do more and wondering why you weren't hitting the targets that you'd set yourself. So he definitely helped me learn to have days off and, yeah, not be so stressed about it. Yeah, um, That comes from his previous experience of he had like an overtraining syndrome. So he's learned himself how important it is to rest properly and then funny when you rest you're actually stronger yeah. so <laughs> that's definitely one thing also just you know just when you're because for a long time I was just living by myself these sorts of things so you sometimes don't always look after yourself completely and he's always you know making sure like particularly after hard training that still eating enough because you know you might finish training you're too tired to make same for yourself so like yeah I'll do it in a few hours time but your body's recovering needs to recover straight away mm-hmm. it's just little things like that being my ear to be like you know you need to eat, you need to recover, you need to, again, like after your hard sessions and stuff. And then from like the actual racing side, for me it's just fascinating to sit back and watch how, also how their team work because, you know, Formula One is the epitome of, you know, minute details like, you know, trying to create a car that's the most, I don't know, technically advanced car on the planet type thing and which has aerodynamics and just the way like the team works from everybody has their role to the communications that they use to one another to make sure everything's very clear and concise not getting lost so from that actually you know watching observing I can take that to my team and say hey why don't we do this better because quite often in a cycling team communication is not always perfect especially in the race okay we don't have as good radios and as clear and these sorts of things but there's little skills that I've heard and learned from them that I can say, okay, yeah, if we use simple words, it's much more efficient than trying to have a whole sentence while you're racing, you know, at however fast you're going at the time and in the middle of the peloton and these sorts of things. So, yeah, yeah, there's definitely lots of things, but I'd say these are like the key ones that come to mind. Yeah, I think there aren't a lot of parallels, but I could definitely, I could definitely draw some. I feel like cyclists and teams like we're all interested a lot of us are interested in like technology and and pushing our bodies to the limits and and training and and stuff like that and an f1 driver and a pro cyclist you guys are both doing those things and you guys are thinking about technology and like 
you know, are you going to run the low profile rims or the medium rims or the tall rims, you know, and it's little things, but it all adds up. And you could say that about pro cycling, or you could say that about F1 racing. You say that about a lot of things, but there are some interesting parallels there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tiffany, I wanted to ask you about your role on the Canyon SRAM team. So uh, we're a mountain bike website, of course. So I wanted to explain road racing a little bit and what your role is on the team and some of the other roles. Could you could you talk to me about that? Yeah, so obviously in road racing, there's a lot more to it than just the first person crossing the line. Um, you know, these days in particular, as women's cycling has got more and more competitive, like the team dynamic becomes more and more important and everybody has a bigger role. Like in any environment, you have your team and different roles. So for me, more often than not, these days, I'm like the road captain and often more a support rider. So what the road captain means, it's like the one kind of being the eyes and the ears for the team. Because mm-hmm. although you say, okay, we have the radios with the car behind, but in a race, they're always at a minimum a few seconds behind the action. So, you know, if they have TV, it will be delayed. If they have radio communication they get from the race jury, it's always delayed. So they can only give us so much information versus we're the ones who are seeing it happening right right there and now. So it's like you might need to make a quick decision. So that's up to me to say to the team, okay, we need to act now. We need to change our plan. We need to cover this attack, you know, these sorts of things. So that's one part of the role. And then the other is, yeah, just obviously more when you're a support rider, it's, yeah, doing the dirty work, let's call it, like riding in the wind, putting your riders into the right position at a critical moment, making sure we have everyone together when we need it as well. Like it might be like you need to ride the front now and I'll sit behind or, you know, these sorts of things. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'm – and also off the bike, it's also giving the same kind of information feedback in a team meeting before and after, like what I've seen people have done well, what we need to improve on. So it's just because, you know, I have been in the sport for a very long time and I have always been quite good tactically. Like I understand the dynamics of racing and, yeah, you know, being in the right position at the right time because I think I've never been a super powerful rider. So the way I've been strong enough is by being crafty. So hiding in the wind, getting into the corner at the right point, you know, if it's about to all split up. So through that over years of experience and also having – elder riders who had that experience pass on to me that's what kind of has put me into that role in the more recent years but yeah with the team on average you always have like your leader sometimes you'll have co-leaders depending on the race and how much you know sometimes you need plan a and plan b because you know in a classic it can be hectic you can have crashes punctures mechanicals all these sorts of things and your key rider could be out so sometimes you need that second rider or if you know you have two people who are capable of winning you can play with that if you're in that fortunate position. So, yeah, as we say, we'll sometimes have the outright leader if they suit the course and have been given the role to be peak performance for that race. Then we go all in and believe in them and support them to what they need to be able to hopefully win the race. Then, of course, yeah, you have like for a sprint, you'll have your lead out riders. They're the ones, okay, you have your train starting from probably the one who's the most powerful but least good in the hecticness moving back to like maybe more explosive riders, you get close to your sprinter who can deal with all like the argy-bargy because in a sprint it gets, you know, very hectic. And if you don't have a strong strong train that keeps their own train and not in the middle of all the mess, then normally your sprinter will struggle and have to find their own way. So 
yeah. you're that kind of thing. And yeah, then you're just general domestics, which you use them depending on the race, who's the strongest for that race versus the weak, weakest, let's say, like doesn't suit the course the best. They will generally do the early work and use the energy. Because, That's a nice way to put it, Tiffany. <laughs> well, there, you know, you, you know it can be like a mountain at the end and know that you have three climbers and let's say three power riders. The powerful yeah. riders probably aren't going to make it up. So use their energy at the start instead of saving and saving and saving them and then they're getting dropped as soon as we hit the climb and they're not any use to the team. So that's yeah. kind of how you have to structure. You kind of look, yeah. what's the race? What do we need to give us the best chance of winning? And then you choose the roles based on that. And Road racing is a funny old sport. <laughs> you know, there's oh, the amount... The, the amount of strategy in it, like if I was just to turn on the television, not being a cyclist and, and watch a road race, I would just think like, you know, what are these people doing in the back? <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't realize yeah. that they're like thinking ahead and, and all that stuff. It's a complicated sport in a lot of ways, like F1 is too, or, or I mean, a lot of sports at, at any high level like that, it's difficult to just like turn it on and watch it and understand it. So I, I think the strategy thing is, is such an interesting aspect of what you're doing out there. It's yeah, it's, it's important. <laughs> you can't just be the strongest. That's for sure. <laughs> I like to call yeah. it a game of chess with poker on wheels. That's like the best way to describe road racing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You want to make your moves close to your heart and you know, also play the game against other teams to make them use their cards before you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what about this gravel thing you're doing? Like you've you've been you've been racing on the road for for a long time now. You are you've been very good at it. You've been successful. Um, and then this other thing comes along. Is it is it not difficult, but? Is it sort of like almost like scary? Like you, you, you have this other. It is. It is another sport. Do you feel like you might be leaving road racing, heading more towards gravel, like a change, like that kind of thing? Or how? How's that? How do you see that playing out? Yeah. So currently, at the moment, I don't see it as it's like the kind of exit to road just yet. Like I think mm. basically how it all started was well. Funny enough, my first experience of gravel was SBT Gravel, the very first edition 2019. At the time, we were out there to race Colorado Classic. Canyon was a major sponsor of the race, and they wanted us, a couple of our riders, to race it. So the team were like myself and my teammate, Ella Harris, at the time was like, you know, you guys go out there, just have fun. You're not allowed to race hard. You're not allowed to do the longest. Just be there more for the sponsors and just use it as a opener. But the goal is obviously the Colorado classic. So we did it and, you know, I had a blast. Like I'd have no, ex- yeah. I'd heard and seen gravel a little bit. It was kind of still in the earlier part of the gravel rev- revolution, let's say. But it was, for me, it was just like, I'd, I'd always push the team to try to do other things. Like, because as you said, being in the sport for a very long time, I enjoy road, but of course you do get tired sometimes. And I've always been an athlete that I get stronger or I don't know. I've, I'm better on the road if I use outlets to try like different sports in the off season, you know, do different yeah. disciplines. Like I've Keep played fresh. mountain bike, but never most. Exactly. So then this is this. So it was great. It was fun, but it was just left as that. And then when I was doing my contract negotiation at the end of 2019, I think it was at the time it was a bit, I'd had a few up and down years on the road and some, you know, I'd always found good periods in the season, but I was never consistent. So then I think, 
our team owner, Ronnie, he was, I think he saw I needed a different stimulus and he also saw the importance for the sponsors to be in the gravel scene. So in our team, we've often had multidisciplinary athletes, like we had Pauline Fran Perreau for a number of years, who was obviously mixing mountain bike cross and road at some points. Um, So, yeah, so he proposed the idea. He said, what do you think about doing some gravel, you know, mix it with your road? Because he believed for me not only would it help me get stronger for like particularly as a power, for the power on the road, but give me that fresh kind of new challenge so I can go off, do some gravel, come back to the road and be motivated again. And, of course, Mm -hmm. I was open to it. I was like, great, this this sounds awesome. So then 2020, that was the plan. Of course, 2020 was a bit of a mix. Actually, so I'm all a year out. This will happen at the end of 2020. 2021, obviously, it went back and I had a plan to do the gravel and it was also learning, understanding what races are out there, how we're going to manage it. Team was like, great idea, but then they're like, okay, <laughs> what about the logistics of it all? So fortunately, my personal management team have helped with a lot of that along with, you know, the team partners. But then yeah. I made the Olympic team, which was obviously amazing and one of my big big goals. So then the gravel all got shifted slightly later because I was going to start with Unbound, which looking back, I'm glad I didn't because my next <laughs> first say. race was S- Yeah, my yeah. next race was SPT and I did the Black Cross, which was, what, 240K or something. You know, I finished, I was broken. I was like, oh, so long and Unbound is obviously, what, 200 mile, which I've never ridden that in my life. So, yeah, so then it was kind of an introductory that year. And then since then, it's I've always used as a nice balance to say, okay, I can still focus on the road. I still have goals on the road. You know, at the moment, women's cycling is in a really amazing place, like with so many big and new races and excitement around the sport. So I'm not ready to exit yet. But at the same time, I can, let's say, do the classics. It's fun. It's hardcore. It's tiring. But I love it. And then I can say, okay, month of May, we go off to gravel. So it's just kind of separating like that of like having these outlets a few times during the year to go off and do some gravel. Because don't get me wrong, yeah. the gravel races are hard, like super hard, so hard, but in a different way. But the atmosphere is really, really nice and not the same pressure cooker that you have on the road. So that's where it's like, at, that's where I'm at the moment. Let's see in the future if it does eventually go off and just do gravel and leave road behind. But for now, at least until 24, I have ambitions to still do the both and still you know, have targets on the road. Yeah. You, you mentioned something there about it being exciting. And I just want to say women's racing lately has been crazy. Like, I mean, I watch a fair bit of racing and, and when I watch men's racing to me from the outside, basically it just seems like they're going as hard as they can until the dudes fall off the back, you know? Whereas, and I mean, I know it's not that simple, of course, but when I watch women's racing, there just seems to be like a lot more strategy and it's a lot more interesting, you could say. I, I don't know if you feel the same about it, but like that's the impression that I get, you know, especially with uh, uh, road racing and uh, cyclocross racing lately too has been quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, as you say, I think the mixture of sports growing, there's obviously more money in the sport, so more riders can do it professionally full-time yeah. instead of balance between the two of like working in that and we just have more depth so there's more teams with more strength so there is a lot more different when I started for example there was one or two big teams and they would dictate the races now you have like 10 strong teams yeah you know doing all their tactics I think that's definitely helped to make it more exciting to watch and show on the interest and shorter race or more yeah action. yeah like because there's always this push, let's make it longer let's make it longer and I'm like why whenever we race longer 
it's more negative versus if it's like that, you know, 120 to let's say 140K, it's always exciting. Yeah. So I'm not for let's make the races longer. I want to keep it in that thing, but that's just me. Because for me, that's, yeah, we just race hard and different groups and all that. Yeah. <laughs> Valtteri, they need to start doing sprint races, eh? Instead of these big, long things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> Uh, Valtteri, you've done some gravel races as well too. How did those go? Good. I really enjoy those. So like when Tiffany does gravel races and if I have a free weekend that time, yeah, most likely I will tag along. So I really enjoy it because, you know, it's uh, a poor person who just loves to ride a bike and trains with a bike um, and would like to try a competition, let's say, um, to jump into a road race. It can be like a really big step for for anyone so i feel like yeah. with with gravel everything is a bit more relaxed it's uh, also a lot about the the event itself you know sharing that that weekend with with all the other people there's you no know, usually all kinds of other activities and it's just like less pressure for, for everyone and you can either go full gas you know trying to beat your personal goal or you can just challenge yourself or you can just go and try and complete it and at the same time, you can be, you know, in, in some of the cases, you can be on the same line with pro riders, which is something that is pretty, pretty unique in the gravel scene. Yeah. Didn't you, didn't you win a race at some point in the recent future of Valtteri? Tiff let me win. So. Uh, he would have beaten me in the sprint anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we did the, the Belgian waffle ride, Kansas. Um, yeah. We did the, the shorter shorter course uh, together um, because it was Tiff's holiday already. But yeah, I did I that, was a bit that, tired, that so I didn't want to do the long one anymore. <laughs> I did that one last year and I really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, now it went well, yes. So we went kind of together on a, on a breakaway and <laughs> decided yes. on, the, on the finish line. Who's <laughs> oh, nice. I imagine for you, Coming from F1 weekends, where we're going to talk a lot about F1 weekends coming up here in a few minutes, don't worry. But I, I can't imagine the pressure that you have to deal with. You, you might be used to or, or not used to or whatever, but it's still a ton of pressure in an F1 weekend. For you, it must be nice to be able to go to a competitive event like a gravel race and still race and push yourself, be competitive, chase people down, maybe people chase you down, step on some balls. But then at the end of the day, you could just hang the bike up and like it's not a make or break thing like it is with your actual career. Yeah, you're completely right. You know, that's one of the big reasons why I enjoy it so much because I think when when it com- comes down to different sports, I would say Formula One is probably on top of one of the highest, if not the highest, sport in terms of the the pressure for the for the drivers for the athletes and for the team members itself because in the end it is a big sport which means it it is big business Uh, there's a lot of politics a lot of money involved so you know the teams they are in a way big companies that they want results so yeah definitely quite challenging environment Uh, so that's why yeah let's say if i do spd gravel uh, I don't have that much pressure <laughs> and it's just yeah. I can really enjoy the weekend. You know, it's just like, of course, I want to do well. I have, because I'm competitive, I have my own goals. Um, but that's it, you know, and if something goes wrong, it goes, you know, it's not end of the life. So it's, it's. Uh, I think you're 100% right in that. 
Yeah, yeah. Speaking of pressure, you have always seemed to do pretty well when it comes to qualifying. Um, Mexico was unreal. And that's a recent one, obviously, but like Barcelona 2019 comes to mind. What is it about those one lap efforts that seems to suit you? Like, is it the pressure that you excel under or do you have like another level of concentration? Why do you think that you excel at qualifying? I feel like, yes, uh, I feel like if I look at my my career so far, um, I would say I've been always a bit better qualifier than I've been in a race on, on average. Um, that's, uh, I think that's, that is right. Uh, what, what is important in qualifying is, is a lot about the concentration because it is that one lap, you know, it's depending on the track, if it's between one and two minutes, it's all about being able to get your mind into a right uh, place, you know, try and find that flow. And yeah, it's all about focus, concentration, and being in that moment and being, you know, highly focused, but at the same time, not trying too much. Yeah. Um, and I, I I really love it. Like when you're just in terms of your mental capacity, you're like at your max. And that is pretty cool because in the, in the race is different. You're observing many different things. Of course, the race start is pretty hectic, but apart from that, you're all, you know, you almost sometimes leave a bit of margin here and there. Of course, sometimes you push and sometimes you, you might do mistakes, but the race is, yeah, you know, it's almost two hours, uh, whether as qualifying is maximum two minutes. So. Canyon is proud to present a new chapter for steering dynamics. Keep It Stable technology, otherwise known as KISS, actively centers your steering to increase stability and combat wheel flop. Fully integrated into their Spectral 29 CF trail bike, KISS is a completely maintenance-free system and can be adjusted to suit the rider and the terrain. Learn more about Keep It Stable technology on Canyon.com. You mentioned something there. You said um, you, you don't want to try too hard. And that's something that really resonates with me, both on the bike and in, in other places. Um, like I think like when I'm on my... When I'm on my stupid, silly sim rig, when I'm on that thing and I try to do like a balls out lap, it never works. It never, ever works. But when I, when I get into that thing and I start and I say to myself, Mike, don't be an idiot. Start at 70%, then go to 80%. And you know what happens? I set the fastest times I've ever done every single time. But then I try to go a little harder and it never works. Um, how do you, I mean, I'm sure there's not like a, an answer for everybody that you could tell me here, but how do you find that line without going too far, especially when that line is like, you know, hundredths of a second sometimes? How do you, how do you feel that out? It's so easy to say and so hard to do, you know, it's easy yeah. to say, don't try too hard. But, you know, obviously if you have your goals and you really want to do well on top of that, you might have people breathing on your on your on your neck, uh, who are putting pressure on you that you need to do well, almost kind of that way. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's really a sensitive sport, um, and when it comes to driving, yeah, it is a skill sport. Obviously, it is quite physical at times, but when it's about setting, you know, good laps, then is you know mostly mental. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's because we were you know the drivers were separated by hundreds of a second, so then 
it is so sensitive that yeah, if you just try that little bit too hard, or you're not in the in the right headspace, you know, it's immediately <laughs> shown in the in the stopwatch. But yeah, I think all like managing your managing your your focus, managing your uh, feelings, it comes with experience. I, I learned so much about myself you know, throughout the sport. And uh, I started driving when I was really young. Uh, first go-kart race, I was six years old. So, you know, since then I've been racing. And luckily I was pretty pretty interested about how to be faster from early age onwards. Like immediately I was curious about, you know, how can I get my lap time better? And I think that's when the focus started to develop in a way that the, the right type of focus that you need for driving and it almost comes as a routine nowadays, like in the qualifying, let's say. It's just, um, I don't know, I don't need to do much. It just comes that um, you you almost know that now it's time to perform at your, your best and <laughs> then it happens. Yeah. But obviously throughout the career, there's been ups and downs. I've had terrible qualifyings. I've had amazing qualifyings and you always learn from those. You always try to think, what did I do? What did I feel? when I had that amazing qualifying and same thing when you had a bad one, like why did it go wrong? What did, was there something bothering me or, you know, was I too excited or was I not excited enough? You know, it's all the kind of things that you always keep searching from deep inside yourself and being honest with yourself and learning about things step by step. Yeah. The, the being honest with yourself is quite interesting um, in your state of mind and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's such a complicated sport. You guys are going so fast. Um, I feel like you have to have, you would, to be successful, I imagine you'd have to have your life in order and you'd have to be, like mentally, you have to be in order as well. Have you ever used any sort of sports psychologist or like anything like that to really delve into that stuff? Uh, I have, I have. And I would recommend to anyone who is thinking about it to to give it in the go because I don't know if it's a Finnish thing or if it's just me, but I almost felt like before I ever used one, I felt like it's a weakness to search for yeah. outside help. But no, that's, that's for me, that's completely silly that I thought that way because, you know, there's so many great professionals who can widen your, your thinking and, and view of the sport or, or your view of the life with questioning, questioning you with, with the correct questions and makes you think things differently. So it's just like, yeah, I would recommend uh, for anyone if they're in doubt, if they feel like, should I try outside help? Absolutely, because it can really open many locks in a way and it can make you think things differently. And yeah, um, and yeah, for some people also, you might need to have that external person to, to open up really with certain things that are otherwise difficult to speak to anyone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like that's such a guy thing, you know, like such a macho thing, like, you know, I can do this on yeah. my own, but sometimes like, dude, like we just got to get out of our own freaking way sometimes, eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. First time I, I used one was 2014. Um, like Tiff mentioned, I went through like pretty bad overtraining period. And yeah, at some point, like, yeah, my physique started to go down. And once the physique goes down, then you're just running on, on mental power. And obviously that will run out at, out eventually. It's like if you um, so yeah, then then I was in a situation that I definitely needed some 
some help on on actually the work that that I with that coach was more about my approach to the sport itself. Um, back in the day, I took the sport way way too seriously, yeah. and it was all I had in my life. So um, yeah, that was really important moment for me to understand that yeah, okay, there's even though you love the sport and it's you know almost everything. <laughs> everything that you love and uh, you want to be the best in the world but you know sometimes you need that contrast and other things to do and other things to think about as well like a bit saying that Tiffany just explained that you know to keep mixing up things to be to make sure that once you get to your sport and when it's time to perform then you're mentally fresh for it yeah um speaking of time to perform one of the things i wanted to ask you was how you come back mentally from an incident like you know let's say it's let's say it's fp3 and you have a big off and it ain't good <laughs> you know and you got to go to qualifying dude like a couple hours later do you have any sort of routine or strategy to overcome things that have might might have held you back before qualifying or before the race to move past them um i think that's something that i've really just got so much better throughout my career on, you know, overcoming, especially own mistakes, which are always the, the worst in terms of the feeling and it can make it tricky to, to come back to the next session. But it's pretty simple for me nowadays. Like I'm really honest with myself. Like I don't need to hide anything. Uh, and it's all about accepting the mistake, understanding it. Why did it happen? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it was technical things that affected it or whether it was your mistake. And if it was your mistake, it's trying to get as quickly as you can to the core why it happened. And sometimes it might be uh, that it just happens. You know, everyone makes mistakes and normally it's about the focus. But it, yeah, in a nutshell, it's about understanding it, accepting it, then then move on. Yeah, because it's, yeah. the fact is everyone does mistakes and that mistake is not going to be your last one. So it's better to get on with it and look at the future because you can't change the past you can only learn from it yeah it's funny that you guys pro athletes at any level you you definitely have some like similarities you know so jesse melamed is our he's an ews champion and i asked him a similar question and he explained to me that as long as he knew what happened it didn't matter if it was his mistake or a bike setup issue or something like that as long as he knew the problem, the cause, he could move on from it. And obviously, like when they're racing and training, a lot of times cameras cameras are on them. So he has the ability to watch the footage back and see what went wrong and stuff. But it's it's funny how knowing what went wrong sets you free to move on, eh? Yeah, it's it's key, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about driving different types of F1 cars. Uh, we've seen a big change in the formula recently. Um, do you prefer the current cars over previous generation? Or do you have a preference even as long as you're racing at the highest level and going fast? I actually prefer the current cars because the racing is definitely closer. Like you can follow the cars ahead of you closer. Mm-hmm. Uh, to somebody who doesn't understand why it's been difficult to follow is because, you know, the, the car, the grip that you have from the car, it depends especially in higher speed, so much about the the aero uh, and the downforce. So it's like 
opposite to a plane wing. So we have the wings the other way around and the car is pushed to the ground, which gives us grip. But in a corner when you're following another car, then obviously the air in front of you gets uh, turbulent, gets distracted. So then your wings and your diffuser in the car doesn't work as it should. But yeah, nowadays the cars, the wash that comes from the car ahead is designed that it flows a bit better. So the you can actually follow cars better in the corners. So the racing is better. So yeah. I prefer that. Only negative this year is that the cars are getting a bit heavier. Um, and I think that's going to be the case in the future, partly because of the safety. You know, the the, the chassis, the, the cell itself is getting more and more safe and robust, uh, but also with the battery technology, as F1 has been hybrid since 2016, uh, for sure, that adds a bit of weight. So, yeah, that's not maybe that great in terms of the feeling, but the cars are still, like, so fast. You know, the, the efficiency of the power unit and the grip we have is is, is pretty unreal. Yeah. They're the most efficient engines in the world, which is a pretty crazy right. feat. Yeah. Um, yeah. You absolutely. you mentioned that the new formula, it is, it is quite different. Uh, the aerodynamics are coming, a lot of the aero downforce is coming from the bottom of the car instead of the top. Uh, obviously, there's been huge changes when it comes to tires and wheels, which leads to suspension changes. Cars are heavier, that sort of thing. How would you describe how you've had to change your driving style to suit these cars? Is that something that you can explain in a way that someone who is never going to drive an F1 car can understand? Is it is there different braking points, uh, different types of braking? How, how, how has that changed? So I would say the biggest difference with these cars were that, you know, in the higher speed corners, you know, some really, really fast corners. Actually, the, the grip we have and the sensation we have compared to the cars in the previous years is, for me, it's pretty identical. Like, there was no mm-hmm. chance needed. But the lower the speed, uh, there's a bit more, um, it, there's a bit bit less grip. And the car, you can definitely feel the weight a bit, like it's, in a way, slightly more lazy once you turn into the corner. But... I would say the biggest change for me was changing a team from from last year. At the same time, there was the regulation change. So already, like every car is so different mechanically, um, you know how the suspension works and what's the steering ratio, all these kind of things. There's already many changes from, let's say, from Mercedes to Alfa Romeo. But in terms of the driving style itself, I didn't really have to actually change it much. Like mm-hmm. in the slow speed corners. Maybe needs to be a bit more sensitive and a bit more like predicting the movements of the car a bit more, but instead of being like really reactive driving style. Uh, but what has been nice this year that uh, with this team, I've been able to set up the car a lot more to my liking, which I did struggle a bit with the, with the previous team. So that's been quite yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. That Mercedes... That thing was fast as hell. I mean, the thing is, though, they all look pretty fast on television. Like, if the timing wasn't on television and you were just watching the race, they all look the same. They, they, they all look the same speed. How would you compare? Let's just, I know it's a different formula, but how does your Alpha compare to the Mercedes um, in the cockpit? Like, is it, I guess what my question is, we see these cars separated by half a second, let's say. 
in qualifying. What does that feel like to you in the car? Is it, are you losing that speed down the straight or are you losing it in the corners, like less front end grip? Where's the difference? Where do you feel that? Yeah, you know, half a second in, in the Formula One is a lot, but actually when you split it into a corners, let's say if you have a track that has 10 corners, it's only five hundredths of a second per corner. So it's like yeah. almost nothing, but you feel it, you know, it's, uh, and I would say the biggest difference to last year, uh, to this year is, is the generation of cars, you know, they're heavier, they're a bit wider, have different tires. So it's like fine details. It's impossible to, uh, to compare because of the difference of the, of the regulations, but, um, yeah. Yeah, you, you feel it, you know, and every car is different. Sometimes you might lose all that time on the straights. It's not a lot. It can be just one or two kph, but over the whole lap, it all calculates. Uh, but some cars might be better in slow corners. Some cars might be a bit better in fast corners. Um, mm -hmm. Some cars are better in the braking, some in the acceleration. So it's like when you're talking so small uh, details, it's uh, sometimes it's tricky to point out exactly where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the first time you're in an F1 car was 2011, maybe, possibly? Yep, yep. Yeah. So that was, I think, just after, well, it was a few years after, the V10 F1 cars. But did you ever drive any of the, the V10 F1 cars or any older F1 cars in general? I have driven some old ones. Um, late, the oldest ones I've <clears throat> driven has been from 1950s oh wow uh, which are pretty yeah pretty cool uh i've driven uh the world championship winning car of keke rosberg from 1982 i've driven a bunch of williams cars from nine 90s yeah um yeah that was like uh, well, oh was that in the 50s i thought that was even older i think it was 50s yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I've driven quite quite a few cool old old cars. Oh, dude, that is amazing. So okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pose this question for you here. It's a beautiful sunny day. It's 25 degrees. Hasn't rained. Track is rubbered in. What track are you going to? And what car is it? Um, it's gonna be Suzuka in Japan. It's still my favorite track. More than Sochi? Uh, yes, I would say so. In terms of the layout and everything, yes, I would say okay. so. Um, yeah, Suzuka, it would be the McLaren Mercedes 1998 um, because when I was a kid, Mika Hakkinen was my like big hero and he won his first title in Japan uh, with that car in 1998. And yeah, that was like, I still haven't driven any of his cars from the past. So if I could choose today, it would be that. Do you know Mika? Yes, I know very well. He's actually part of my management oh. team since... 2007 which is also pretty cool all right yeah all right why do you why do you think you've been so good at sachi valtteri uh yeah so it's a good question um i don't know <laughs> <laughs> like the first year we were it's it's quite tricky difficult track to like find the flow because sometimes like some tracks you just find it some tracks yeah it's almost hard to get to rhythm and and feel the grip and it looks low grip. Yeah, it, it is low grip. It's quite smooth surface. But I just found that flow very quickly in the first year. And every year I was able to 
build on that. And I think some others maybe struggle a bit more. But mm-hmm. I don't know why. Normally on the smooth surface, I've been always good. Um, maybe it comes from the ice driving I had as a kid. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that would make sense. Um, okay, let's let's move on a little bit here. You're going to go for a huge ride. You've had not a ton of teammates in the past. Uh, Pastor, Philippe, Lewis, Juan, you go. Um, who are you taking out of all your previous teammates on your giant bike ride and why? Uh, none of them like cycling. So. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I would choose the one who hates the most, so that would be Lewis. Because <laughs> he always his bum hurts when he tries a bicycle. So I'll take him so we yeah, it would be fun. Yeah. I think you you might just take him out there and leave him for dead, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, like my current teammate, he he doesn't like cycling oh, yeah. because he got taken to this training camp a couple of years ago. He's in Lanzarote. In Lanzarote. Yeah. He never really cycled and he got taken to a training camp. Um, for 10 days, like full everyday cycling, more than 100K. And he's really doesn't, hasn't touched the bike since. So I understand Dude, that kind of experience. His ass probably hasn't healed yet. If he had never ridden bikes like that, and then he goes to a training camp, he's still got saddle sores probably. <laughs> do you have a, do you have a favorite teammate you've had over the years? Someone that you, you've got along with really well? I've got along with everyone always really well because it's also important to have a good teammate relationship if you want the best for the yeah. team. With Yeah, with Pastor, it was only one year, but he was a fun guy, uh, really a character. And Felipe also really such a lovely guy, a lot of experience, and he's been through a lot in his life as well. Um, Luis, obviously, I still feel like he's the best Formula One has ever seen in terms of the talent and the the performance overall. And also I got to know him well, so nice guy. And and my teammate now, Guan Yu, he's who's first ever Chinese driver in the in the world in, in F1. Um, has huge amount of pressure for sure. Like from uh, his country and everyone is expecting a lot from him, but yeah. he's only 20, 23, but he's been really impressive how he's been able to handle that on his first first year and he's been able to do very few mistakes and actually very decent progress throughout the whole year so i think he's got a good future ahead of him but i can't choose the the favorite one. yeah i've been super impressed with your your current teammate actually and man i've always been a fan of underdogs and it's not to say that juan Hugo is an underdog i that's not what i'm implying but when he first came into the sport Man, people could be assholes. People can be terrible online. And he caught so much grief. So for him to come in, and especially early in the season, he had some pretty good freaking weekends. And that was, it was so cool to see. And and I feel like he's definitely like, he's earned his spot and shut up the haters and, and all of that. Um, how much time do you, sorry, do you pay any attention to anything the media says, or do you just have to ignore it all? Uh, I try to ignore and try to pay as little attention as I can. Yeah, um, good. I, I learned that that's the best way. Obviously, like between before every race weekend, always on Thursday, we have this media day yeah. um, at the track. 
and of course from our team we always get briefed of the current world topics f1 topics questions i might be most likely being asked for yeah. for and stuff like that so of, of course like every race weekend especially i get like a lot of information on, on what's going on but when I'm, I'm away of racing uh, i try to follow as little as i can and i prefer yeah. to spend my day on my gravel bike in, in the forest yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's a good place to spend it what about you tiffany i mean in cycling too the media could be pretty savage and especially in social media people talking shit stuff like that do you basically just ignore that sort of stuff and just like get on with your get on with your job get on with killing it i definitely try i'm not as good as valtteri at it like for me my personal experience within the cycling side it's always been positive like Mm -hmm. i feel on the women's side we get a lot less hate than say the men i know for sure like the men they get attacked a lot more like you're a doper you're a cheat you're this you know there's a lot of that but on the women's side i feel like we have a better positive of course there's some who get it for various reasons but on average on the cycling side yeah i had a far more positive and even on the media like Nine times out of ten, I've had pretty positive interviews, none trying to like fight. There's always, you know, certain journalists you'll be like, okay, be careful of them. They'll take your one word and twist it. But fortunately, you know, I didn't have that too often. So, But, yeah, it was when I obviously started dating Valtteri, that's when I saw the ugly side of social. And, you know, I got some myself and also – and it's like when it's in your face and you just see it, it's – you know not to react, but at the same time it's sometimes hard not to take it personally. So – yeah. I'm learning and getting better. Sure, still, I can't, I'm not as good at completely blocking out like Valtteri. But, yeah, in particularly when he was at Mercedes, like, yeah. It, like, people are just nasty for no reason. No reason. Yeah. Just people could be so terrible. Enough. Yeah. And it's like, why? Why is that necessary? And, yeah, I guess I'm just a bit more sensitive sometimes. But, like I say, in the cycling world, it's definitely – a lot less nasty. Yeah. I think I think we all can be a bit more sensitive and spend a lot less time looking at things that the media are doing. Except for this podcast, everybody. Just- Definitely share this podcast a lot. <laughs> um, let's, let's turn it around back to the Finland gravel race. Uh, there are a couple different versions of the race that you can sign up for. Um, so can you tell me which ones there are, how long they are? Uh, and how many people you guys expect to come to this race in Finland? Yeah, sure. I can jump in here. Um, so when we put the race together, we really wanted different courses courses that would appeal to whether you're doing your first gravel event or your world tour pro and wanting to go long. And so inspired by Valtteri's number, our longest course is the 177K mm-hmm. Um And that's basically our black course called the Midnight Sun. Um, Our middle distance is um, the the blue course, so Lakes course, and that's 77K. And then our shortest is really one for um, anyone who is not used to racing as far or doesn't want to race as far or, to Tiffany's point earlier, wants to just race fast. And that's a 40K course. That's our green forest course. So we think with those three distances that we have something that can appeal to really a broad range of of cyclists, um, of any age group, of any ability, really. 
And our um, our hope is to have 1,500 people on the start line. Um, and that's just our our starting point for the event. We found that, um, it, at least in Steamboat, that we've, we're up to 3,000. And that, that feels like about the right number that we can accommodate and um, still have. Uh, everyone has a great experience at that number. It's not too many, but it's still a, a really a fun race. So 1500 is what we're aiming for for this one. Wow. How much climbing is in the the long day, the 160-kilometer stage? I think that one is right around 6,000 feet. Is that right, Valtteri? Um, the, the, the numbers on Strava are a little bit off from what the actual was. We're still we better did. in the meters, so... So it's not like huge. There's no there's no mountains. mountains in the south of Finland, but there's some short punchy hills. Yeah, yeah. There's some surprises in the last 10K, but the area itself is just quite regularly rolling. So it's like, yeah, you never have more than a few hundred meter climb, but the constant makes it challenging. But on average, it's a very fast course. And yeah, like we say, at the end, there's a few leg surprises. breakers. Yes. <laughs> just yeah. to yeah, I think people go into it thinking, wow, this is so fast and um, we're finishing soon. And then at least that was my experience at the end of it. It was um, you get to some pretty steep um, pitches at the at the very end. Again, none of them are long, but it's it'll keep everyone on their toes. And this is the courses will come down to the very end um, because of of what we have there. Yeah. Valtteri, I'm, I'm picturing those super fast Finnish roads that I see the, the rally cars on, the really smooth, fast ones. Is it that kind of terrain? Yeah, some parts of it. It's like the beauty of, of, of that region in, in Lahti is that there's a mix of different type of gravel roads. Um, you know, some are wider, some are narrower. So yeah. it's a nice mixture of different things. Yes, there's some nice rolling rolling gravel like you see on, on TV. Yeah. It's and a which... flowy, like e-tracks as well in there at the start and the finish oh nice which one are you guys going to do just so i know which one to sign up for so i can which i can get on your wheel to suck <laughs> i think we're going to do different ones i'll probably do the 177 yeah and for me it's going to be between my two races again um of, of the f1 races so you are strong enough for 77 between races yeah yeah <laughs> at, at least i do the 77 so the middle course um, okay. i think the long one could be bit tricky for me, but let's see. All right, Valtteri, I have one more question for you before we wrap this up. It has nothing to do with cars. It has nothing to do with bikes, but I ask pretty much every guest this question when I have them on, or I try to. In all your travels around the world, all your times on planes, all of that, out in the forest on your bike, have you ever seen anything strange and unexplainable in the sky? UFOs or anything strange like that that you thought, what the heck is that? No. <laughs> oh, I've seen Northern Lights, you know, the Aurora, <laughs> many times. Yeah, I would imagine. It's crazy to explain, but no, sorry, I haven't seen any. I wish I would have seen a new UFO or something, but so one, one day night. I didn't yeah. believe it. What about you, <laughs> Tiffany? I would say also the same, no. I joked I saw one the other night because it looked like a shooting star, but it was really bright when we were at dinner. But outside that, you never know. <laughs> I was lights and not as common as what you might think. It took me three attempts of going up there over three years before I finally got the true experience. Um, but no, other than that, just lots of stars, the Milky Way, 
Yeah. We're 0 for 2. Have you seen anything? Yeah, no. <laughs> I would say no for me either. Yeah. 0 for 3. 0 for 3. Oh, boy. All right. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode of the Pink Bike Podcast with Elf Romeo's Valtteri Bottas, Canyon Srams' Tiffany Cromwell, and SBT Gravel's Amy Charity. So I know this one was pretty off-topic, but we're going to be back to bikes in the next episode. For now, though, which F1 driver would you guys like to go on a ride with and why? Put those answers down in the comment section below. And Valtteri, this is what I would usually ask my guests to come on and answer questions in the comment section, but I don't think that you have a uh, a pink bike account. Not yet, anyway, eh? No, I'm going to sign up after this. So. Oh, perfect. <laughs> there you go. You heard it, everybody. Valtteri Bottas is now an official pinker. All right. Thanks for your time, and <laughs> we will, we'll see you in Finland on June 10th for the Finland Gravel Race. Bye.